Hello, and welcome back to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. On this episode, we'll take you to the highest and lowest elevations in the city, we'll learn how downtown Pittsburgh transformed its reputation in the late 90s, and, get out your pom-poms, we'll meet the women who were Steelerettes cheerleaders for the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 60s. And we call ourselves the Raw Raw Sisterhood. We, we just have the best time together, and we've just can't believe how much we've grown and how much we've really clicked as as a group again. These stories ahead after the break. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, Baum Boulevard Automotive, and Eisler Landscapes. Welcome back. Listener Adam Longwill loves capturing images of Pittsburgh's skyline from unconventional places. I'm a big fan of uh, taking photographs of the city from vantage points that are not the Grandview Overlook. He says while traveling around the city, he's found some high spots to get good shots and always figured the very highest point was a radio tower or a skyscraper downtown. But it got him wondering, where is the lowest point of elevation a person can be in Pittsburgh? And I guess there's two questions here with or without specialized equipment, because I'm wondering if the bottom of one of the rivers would be the lowest point that you could go in Pittsburgh. Longwell's instinct is spot on, according to University of Pittsburgh geology and environmental science professor Charlie Jones. The lowest natural point is now flooded by the dams. Water flows downhill and southwest to the Ohio River before making its way out of the city. Jones says with special equipment, the lowest natural point would be underwater. But engineers typically keep the water levels in the rivers around 710 feet above sea level. But if you were to go back before the engineers built the dams and you wanted to stay in the um, city limits of Pittsburgh, there's that Jack's Run is the furthest downstream stream that comes into the Ohio River. Jack's Run flows into the Ohio River right at the edge of the city limits. So because we're talking about spots in Pittsburgh proper, that's the lowest natural point. Upstream slightly, the lowest man-made point is in the Marshall Shadeland neighborhood on the bank of the river at the Allegheny County Sanitary Authority, or Alcasan. If you look down over the handrail and you're now looking down about 100 feet, it's uh, allegedly the lowest point in Allegheny County. It's technically a well that collects water before distribution and is 112 feet below the surface, or around 600 feet above sea level. The lowest point for a person who isn't equipped with scuba gear is the area right outside the well in the parking lot near the riverbank by Alcasan. That's according to Scott Hoffman with the United States Geological Survey. The lowest point seems to be in a parking area on the Allegheny Sanatory Authority lot upstream from the McKees Rocks Bridge on the right bank. According to an elevation map, the site is about 706 feet from sea level. It's determined through a method called LIDAR, light detection and ranging. It's a a laser sensor that collects highly accurate uh, elevation data. In this case, within an elevation accuracy of 18.5 centimeters. To gather the data, Hoffman says those sensors are strapped to aircraft that survey the land below and record its elevation. As for the highest point, Pittsburghers might assume it'd be Mount Washington. But actually, the highest spot is a couple miles northeast of the lowest point, right near the Brashear Reservoir in Perry North. That location looks to be at the top of Montana Street. In a fenced-off area near a small brick maintenance building is the highest point in Pittsburgh. It's near a radio tower and is about 1,371 feet in elevation. 
The view from here isn't as glamorous as from one of the Mount Washington overlooks. It's mostly dense trees and a few old satellites. There's a bright yellow caution sign preventing visitors from entering the area, saying there's too much radio frequency for human exposure. Pitt professor Charlie Jones says it might be hard to imagine, but much of Pittsburgh was once as high as this spot. But streams have cut up the landscape, forming hills and collecting into large rivers. The highest elevation areas are leftovers of the original relatively flat surface. You know, I'm sure they're a little bit lower than they were, but they're kind of erosional remnants. While the radio tower building is the city's highest point, there's not much of a view. You can just make out the tip of the UPMC and Highmark buildings downtown above the trees. So if you're looking for a panoramic skyline, you're better off standing on the Mount Washington or West End overlooks. Another great view of the city is, of course, from a seat at PNC Park. There you might see a colorful glowing billboard. What is it? That story after the break. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Baum Boulevard Automotive, Eisler Landscapes, and the CPA firm Sisterson & Company. A strange billboard downtown has been catching the eyes of baseball fans for nearly 20 years. Most Pittsburghers notice the billboard's dim glow while they're watching the buckos on the north side. I'm Karen Iresi. I saw a billboard at PNC Park and it has like this floating triangle on it and I just wanted to know what it was. A color-changing triangle hovers within the 20 by 40 foot screen, slowly rotating, its three points gently tapping each side of the billboard. The figure is calming and almost eerie against the bustling crowds and baseball game below. It's dynamic. Architect Richard Gluckman helped design the billboard. It has that ambiguity of having an artificial perspective to it, but also it can look very, very flat, almost like a flag or a semaphore. The piece is called Sign of Light. Gluckman and artist Robert Wilson collaborated on it and several other projects in the late 1990s. He says the concept of an arts-focused neighborhood was in its early stages. The Cultural Trust was a fledgling nonprofit trying to make downtown Pittsburgh desirable. The newly formed trust gave Gluckman and Wilson two main responsibilities. The first task was to come up with a way to identify the entire precinct, the entire district. And the second thing was to do one or more specific installations in the district. The pair interviewed people at theaters and restaurants downtown and asked them how they'd like to see the area improve. Through the process, they observed that Pittsburghers used alleyways to navigate the neighborhood. People use the alleys, not the main streets. So basically the project, the sort of the identifier project of the cultural district was to animate the alleys and animate them with light. The idea was that light would illuminate these often visited shortcuts, but ultimately give the district a distinct identity. Gluckman and Wilson's first project was a light wall. Much like a scanner, a bar of light projected onto a building at the corner of 8th and Penn Avenues lethargically moved from the top to the bottom. That was it. Simple. Next, the pair moved on to the rooftop placed sign of light. You can see it from a distance. You can see it driving onto the highways uh, from the stadium. The turning triangle represented the Golden Triangle and the confluence of Pittsburgh's three rivers. The display uses more than 10,000 LED lights and is covered by a layer of vinyl to soften the glow. Gluckman says he remembers testing out the structure's luminosity in his New York studio. Put it up in the window and I kept walking away and no matter how far I got, it really looked bright. Sign of Light hasn't changed much since it was installed, but it's become a model for several other illumination projects in the cultural district. Trust visual arts curator Murray Horn says exhibits like the cell phone disco on Exchange Way, the water cube at 8th and Penn, and the red glowing flow display on the Wood Street Galleries are all products of the district's light motif. I think it was indicative of the rebirth of the city, 
that once blighted area is being reborn. Next time the pierogies are racing around the stadium, be sure to look up and take in how a colorful rooftop billboard helped create a distinct character for Pittsburgh's cultural district. Speaking of characters, our next story has quite a few of them. Stick around for the history of the Steelerettes. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Eisler Landscapes, the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, and Baum Boulevard Automotive. In 1960, the Pittsburgh Pirates won their third World Series. The Steelers, though, were not great. In fact, they were one of the least successful teams in professional football. Management needed a way to sell tickets. Their idea? Create the first cheerleading squad in the National Football League. A few years ago, I visited the campus of Robert Morris University. It was homecoming weekend. Campus was packed and the air smelled of hot dogs and fried food. Inside a large white tent, alumni stood around catching up and meeting at tables with their graduation years. At the front of the room, around the 1960s table, about half a dozen women wearing black and gold bedazzled t-shirts were laughing and joking. Everyone wanted to talk to them. These are the Steelerettes. As the Steelers' first and only cheer squad, the women have a special place in Pittsburgh's sports history. And we call ourselves the Raw Raw Sisterhood. We we just have the best time together, and we just can't believe how much we've grown and how much we've really clicked as right. as a group again. My name is Noreen Motory. Back in the day, I was Noreen Mercer, and I was a Steelerette in 1964. They were introduced to the field in 1961 in order to attract fans and sell tickets. Motory says most of the girls on the squad when she was a Steelerette were dancers. During halftime, they'd perform classics like Hello, Dolly! and The Charleston. They'd encounter greats like Benny Benack or Johnny Costa and appear on the Dapper Dan halftime special whenever he was in Pittsburgh. People are so nice to us because we were like the first, and they really respect that. The Steelerettes are excellent preservationists. They have newspaper clippings, black and white group shots, action pictures of them on the sidelines. Yeah, I brought our calendar too. You did too. I brought the calendar. To be a Steelerette, you had to attend Robert Morris Junior College. The vice president of the school at the time also happened to be the entertainment coordinator for the Steelers. That was the main requirement for a spot on the squad. You also had to be unmarried. And once you were married, uh, bye-bye. <laughs> Steelerettes could not interact with the players at all. Most of the women had to take a football quiz to make sure they were familiar with the game. They often made their own uniforms and would frequently be called to help advertise for local businesses or perform at schools and charities. The experience was unforgettable for most of the women. I'm Diane Rossini. Being on the field. That was so much fun. This is fantastic. This is the greatest group of women you'll ever meet. The Steelerettes are full of stories from their time on the field. Motory recalled the short-lived tenure of the men's cheer squad, the Ingots. One of the Ingots would shoot off a cannon when there was a touchdown. Well, I, I forget who the player was who was running into the end zone for the Steelers to get a touchdown, and he prematurely set the cannon off, and the poor Steeler <laughs> probably thought he got shot. <laughs> of course, they were disbanded right after that game, <laughs> needless to say. The Steelerettes were disbanded in 1969 for a number of reasons. Robert Morris now had their own football team, and students wanted to cheer for their school. And when the Steelers moved to a new home, Three River Stadium, the team decided they did not want the cheerleaders anymore. Ironically, the next decade of Pittsburgh football would be one of the Steelers' greatest. Today, when the women get together, it's a constant reunion. 
Their families are connected, their lives intertwined, and you can genuinely tell that they care about each other. They even have sleepovers. When they go out, Miller and Motory say they're always met with eager fans, even if they aren't familiar with the squad. When we are someplace as a group, and people will come up and tell us, you know, they'll say, well, you know, why are you together or something like that? And we'll say, well, we were cheerleaders for the Steelers. Oh, my goodness. We're so happy to meet you. Can we have our picture taken with you? And it's like, really? You know, we're just a bunch happen. of women here and you know, having a good time. But yeah, but they are. I mean, just people are so nice. They couldn't be nicer. The ladies say it's important not to forget the past. Pittsburgh hasn't always been the city of champions. It took a lot of work and perseverance and a lot of people helped along the way. And while the team was still dreaming of a Super Bowl win, a group of about 60 women in total were there supporting them on the field, shaking pom-poms for the black and gold. Hard work, perseverance, and resilience have always been a part of Pittsburgh. This is the city known as the arsenal of democracy, the gateway to the West, the Paris of Appalachia. It's a place full of neighbors who, I like to think, will always be there to help out. Thanks for listening to the second season of our Good Question podcast. It's truly been a joy sharing this time with you. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious.